This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Matt Chancy, and this is the Tax Alpha Podcast. On today's episodes, we have an intellectual property attorney. Her name is Anna Junja. Anna, thanks for joining us today. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Got it. Pleasure to have you. So my first podcast, and sometimes I do them today on the same day. I had one already this morning. She was a female attorney too. So I'm back-to-back female attorney. So that's kind of fun today. Um, clearly she was in a different space, but so let's talk a little bit. What co- Just a foundational level, what caused you to go to law school? I actually don't have a good reason for going to law school. I think I just didn't want to be a housewife. But when I got into law school, I actually just really fell in love with the field I'm in now. So I didn't have a good reason for going, but I have a really good reason for like what I do now. All right. Well, you know what they say, sometimes with any journey, you have to take the first step and then you kind of figure it out along the way. And that sounds like what you did. You're like, I think this, you know, an attorney better than being a housewife and let's see where it goes. And then boom, you found your thing, right? Yeah. Like in on day one or two of law school, I think I uh, was recruited basically into this field. So intellectual property is patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, um, basically intangible assets that a business would own or creator would own. So all of that, um, this field of law, you actually have to have a science background to go into. You don't have to, but to at least do patent work, you are required to have a science background, like a science degree. Uh, Therefore, those of us who have science degrees and go to law school really get pigeonholed into the IP field, which um, I didn't even know until I got to law school, but I ended up loving it. So it worked out really well. I actually can't imagine doing any other field of law. It terrifies me. Like people ask me, you know, hey, can you help me with my speeding ticket? This or that. I can't do it. Just <laughs> it's not my thing. I only do like business, you know, work and then the subsection of IP. Okay. Well, let's go back a little bit then. So where does the, um, you say engineering background and stuff come from, right? Where does that come from? Where did that start? Why did that happen? We know why law school happened. You don't want to be a housewife, but talk about the other thing. How did that happen? So I have a degree in biology. Actually, I think it's called evolutionary or organism biology. I'm not sure, but it's basically just biology. I have a degree in biology, an undergrad science degree, and I have a master's degree in biomedical technology, uh, mostly imaging. So actually in undergrad, I worked for four years in a research lab in the radiology research lab, and um, I studied imaging, medical imaging technology. So 
MRIs, DEXAs, 3D printing, all of that kind of stuff. And I was really in, I wanted to potentially go into that. Uh, I ended up just not wanting to go into a scientific field or anything to do with academic science, medicine, nothing like that. So that's why I ended up in law school, I guess. <laughs> it was either like something in law or finance. And I guess I just think that law was more diverse. I wanted to go into politics for a while. So I was a little lost until I solidified like what I'm doing exactly now. Um, that's okay. Almost everybody is lost at some point, you know, but, yeah. but you found, fa- you found your way. Right. And that's all that matters, but that's, that's what about being young is and going through school and figuring out what interests you. Cause look, you spend a, th- we spend a third of our time working. You got to wake up, dress up, show up and do something every day. If you don't like it and you're not intellectually curious about it, it's going to die on the vine sooner than later. Right. Absolutely. I feel so lucky to do what I do and not just do what I do, but like the specific niche kind of that I'm in, like the clients I work with. I feel so lucky every single day. Sure. Well, great pivot. So let's talk about it. What kind of clients do? So we know that you have this technical background. We know that you became an attorney basically. And obviously I can fill in the gaps. If you aren't technically savvy enough to understand what makes a process or something unique, then how is it possibly patentable as a trade secret or something, right? So that would totally make sense. I got it when you explained it, even though I never thought about it that way before. Yeah. So just to do patent work, you actually have to take a separate bar exam and everything. To qualify for the bar exam, the requirements is to have the science background. So there's what's called soft IP, though I don't like that term, but it's like soft IP and hard IP. So soft IP is actually like entertainment law, basically contracts and copyrights. And then hard IP is like trademarks, patents, that kind of stuff. You know, I do a little bit of everything, but mostly I focus obviously on the hard IP stuff, mostly trademarks. And then I have a bit of patent experience and do a little bit of that as well. But my day-to-day personally falls in the trademark realm um, because let's get to the clients thing. I worked at an international law firm, like a international intellectual property law firm for many years. And we had, I think, 22 offices around the world. And I worked at the U.S. headquarters. So I was managing mostly corporate clients. So almost 100%, I would say 95% of my clients were corporate clients. So the big names that you will know about, you know, um, Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies, really. And uh, I was managing like teams of dozens of attorneys around the world. I was doing very high level IP work, but there was a huge need I saw for people in the creator economy and people who were starting online businesses. They didn't have any IP attorney who understood what their business, like how they make money. And that's really important as an attorney. I actually consider myself a businesswoman before an attorney because um, working in IP, anybody, you know, any IP attorney can hand you a memo that tells you what the law says and what's possible and write you their theories and analysis on things. But to be a good IP attorney, you have to be very pragmatic in terms of understanding your client's risk tolerance level, what their ultimate goal is with their IP, what, and that relates to their ultimate goal with their business and their you know, products, their technology, their brands, all of that. So businesswoman first, but there was nobody who understood that these new emerging businesses. And, you know, a lot of people my age are in those type of fields. You know, I 
Oh, last week I met with a 14 year old who makes seven figures on TikTok selling slime. So there are people out there creating amazing things, you know, creative things that has never been done before, but no one understands their business model. And um, having a good IP attorney and good business attorney is very necessary for small businesses and creators. So that's why I shifted my focus away from more of a traditional IP route to going to serving the kind of clients that I do now. Okay. So, okay. I want to speak to the person selling the slime and making a million dollars. First of all, um, that adds just like the pet rock that made a fortune for somebody. It adds no utility and it's not useful for anybody. It's a novelty. I get it. It makes money. What I don't even know where people come up with this stuff. Good for them for being innovative and leaning into the opportunity. But I think that speaks, in my viewpoint, it speaks less about their business acumen and more about the lack of quality in our society of the things that we find entertaining. Well, it's just a toy. So here's how I think of it. Because a lot of people actually think that. But here's, I think I'm going to change your mind. Because- okay. If you think about the companies that, so she is, you know, in her preteen years and she's targeting obviously people her age or younger, you know, so let's say nobody over the age of 13, 14 is ever going to spend a dollar on what she's selling. So you're targeting that age group that, you know, 13, you know, that maybe nine to 13 year old group who, what do those nine to 13 year olds get? They get toys, but who sells them? Mattel? What other toy toys are, you know, big toy companies sell them toys, right? They're going to be getting toys and entertainment, but it's usually coming from corporations. So she's created slime, just another toy basically, and been able to, you know, market it and showcase it in a way that people want to, that want her particular slime. So it's the same thing that big corporations do. I mean, there's no utility to, you know, certain toys and certain things out there. Um, there's educational toys, of course, but a lot of toys out there have no function. They're not teaching any kids anything. Slime, I guess, still has that like creativity component if you want to argue that it's teaching kids something. But she's just doing what a large corporation could do. She just did it herself and she was able to herself. It actually takes so much talent to be able to produce you like create content, plan content, create it, produce it, upload it, manage a social media page, be able to do, you know, with her, her mom's help, of course, but do her, you know, inventory, tracking, shipping, customer service. So that skill set, she's literally created an entire business before, you know, she's even gone to high school. So it's actually, you know, so did I change your mind a little bit? Well, okay, look, I so understood when you define it that it's in a category. So look, all toys are basically a function of wasting money because all kids outgrow all toys, right? It doesn't have a perpetual use. It solves a problem. Maybe it's as quick of a use case as the kids screaming in the store right now. I can get them to shut up for the next hour if I buy them the toy all the way to something that they are entertained with for a couple of months or something, right? So, Or they want it because their friends have it or it's it's something cool to do, you know? So whatever the reason is to have a toy, Sometimes it's educational. Sometimes it's just for entertainment, whatever it is, there is that purpose. So she, as the business owner and as the product creator and as the manager of her, her business, she is 
she's using a lot of business skills that most adults in America don't even have. And she's done it, you know, at such a young age, just learning stuff on YouTube and all the free information out there. But then you can say, okay, that's one person who's producing something. Business owners, you know, we're our own breed. You can say that. But um, if you look at the people who are consuming her product, buying her product, they're the same. So people say that, oh, people buying slime off TikTok, they're so stupid for doing that. I mean, they're going to go buy some toy from some big company off of Amazon or it's silly putting yeah. slinky. It's like, the same thing. I get it. Understood. Hey, look, and I'm proud. That's awesome for her because you're right. She is learning all the fundamental tenets of actually being a business owner, all the different stuff that you have to do. And she clearly just born in her is somewhat of an entrepreneurial spirit, right? And maybe, you know, maybe that's that whole nature versus nurture thing. Maybe you're born with an entrepreneurial risk-taking gene, or maybe you're not. I don't know the answer to that, right? Yeah, I don't know either. But I think it just shows that, you know, there's definitely things about society that are worse, we can argue. But in terms of access to information and ease of being able to launch something, whatever it is you want to launch, um, a product, a brand, whatever it is, it's the barrier to entry is low now for people mm-hmm. who want it. That's yeah. a great thing. Um, on the flip side, there's going to be more when the barrier of entry lowers, there's more competition. So only the best will succeed. But, um, you know, overall, I think it gives more people who would never have been able to have a seat at any table. It gives them an opportunity. Sure. And I don't Myself disagree. included, you know, I think it's easier now for people to be able to start their own law firm and things like that. I would not have had that opportunity 30 years ago. Sure, sure. And I don't disagree with that. I would argue that I think sometimes the attempt to be entrepreneurial becomes misguided and they really don't have a great idea, strategy, plan, whatever. And they waste all this time and effort on something like, it's kind of like Shark Tank, right? They walk in there and they're like, here's my thing. And the people are like, that's not a business. That's not even a product. Like, what are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? So I think a lot of people in their own mind get so hung up on their idea or their concept without really having the marketplace tell them this is a thing or not a thing, right? Well, I think too, entrepreneurship is very glorified right now and it shouldn't be because not everyone is supposed to be an entrepreneur. Most of the people out there who are starting their own business should not be an entrepreneur. Agreed. Okay. It takes too much sacrifice. It takes too much... I mean, no one's, I guess, going to know it all right away. Um, No one knows any of that, no matter, you know, how many businesses you've started. But it takes a certain amount of that figure it out skill set. Like, that's the most important skill set to have is that you can go and be self-sufficient and figuring things out. And most people don't have that. And they should work for someone else then. Well, there's two. And I agree with you on the figure it out. I'm going to plant the other one. And I think when I say it, I think you'll agree with me, right? So it's one that your 13, 14 year old kind of has and doesn't really understand in a way. It's the ability. It's number one, the desire and to understand a risk return trade off what it's like, but the ability to be able to go for it from a risk on perspective. In other words, some people get that entrepreneurial bug. Maybe it's in their late twenties, but they married and they have a kid and they have a family and a mortgage and they can't lean into that opportunity because they can't sacrifice the safety of of what they've got going on. She's 14. She lives under her parents' roof. She can risk it for the biscuit because there's no downside for her. If it doesn't work, she's got that safety net of her parents and her family to fall back on, right? Absolutely. It takes a lot of risk too. And 
some people have to take on more of the risk themselves. So yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So super interesting. That is a cool story. Thanks for sharing. Yes. You, when you explain the narrative behind it, it definitely changes the perspective. I don't know if anybody, you know, look, I'm, I'm a Lego GI Joe guy. That's just the way I grew up. It is what it is. So I was never into the whole slime deal. So. <laughs> well, it's just, whatever is the cool thing. It's, it's, well, sales is its own skill set, right? Making people want what you have. So that's, yeah. you know, one of the most important business skills. So that she has, but it's more than that. It's being able to do the whole business to a point where you're generating that much revenue. You know, big companies are now trying to buy her business. So, which is why she has an attorney now. So it's, you know, the opportunity for someone like that to do that has never been there before. So, so what do you protect for somebody like that? What kind of IP are you protecting for somebody in a scenario like that? Yeah. So there's mainly, there are three different kind of businesses, I like to say. The first is e-com. So this is just straight up product, physical products or digital products that you're selling to consumers. I would consider that e-com. Then there are service, traditional service-based businesses, whether you're selling in-person or online services. And then there's a third type of business, which is where you're basically monetizing your own self. This would be like models, content creators, things of that nature. That's how I think those are three good categories to talk about their IP. So the first category, like e-com, that's really easy. That means you have something like an actual physical thing or a digital thing, and you sell it to someone and exchange for money. And the IP related to that would be, most importantly, their brand name and their product protection. So if they have some sort of technology in the product um, that's patentable or some sort of method process within the product or software, whatever it is they're selling, that is an invention or a method process or improvement of something before, then that would be protectable with patents. Then you could also protect things like with design patents. If you are, for example, like selling toys, like if you have a toy car, that's very unique design, very unique shape or layout of the toy car, you can protect that in the design patent. Um, the non-functional aspects of it. And then you can protect the brand itself. Like that would be the name, which is all over your marketing, your domain, your socials, your logo, slogans, taglines. You can also protect like um, specific colors, shapes, jingles, smells, motions, all anything that identifies that business as the source of those goods or services can be protected with a trademark. And then trade secrets, kind of like patents, they protect, you know, formula, something like that. Something that is a secret and that has value because it is a secret. And then copyright would apply to e-com because anything that would be a digital product, you really want to have copyright. And, you know, a lot of people, there's like a lot of course creators now, and then a lot of people promote now on social media. So considering protecting, you know, your very valuable content that you're running ads on. So people don't copy you photos of your product that can all be protected with copyright law. So every type of IP protection does apply to all categories, but that's how it would apply to e-com and um, how a business would know what IP they have. They can do an IP audit like with an attorney and then businesses should be auditing themselves every quarter, I say, and just getting, you know, any filings that are necessary, doing any paperwork, all of that for your IP. Keeping your intellectual property chain of title clean um, and your ownership clean saves a lot of money and just keeps everything very easy. It costs a lot more to fix problems than it does just to 
do things the right way and keep track of everything properly. So that's for e-com. And then for service-based businesses, it's really the same thing. So if they have invented something, it can be protected with patent law. If they definitely probably have a brand, they probably, some people have, if you're a service-based business, you might have different memberships, subscriptions, different courses, coaching programs, anything like that, that can all be protected with um, trademark law, slogans, all of that. So this is going to be anything from a coach, a course creator, um, a doctor, a lawyer, anything, anyone who's providing a service to the public is going to fall under like a service-based business. And they have, um, you know, their brands, their content that they would produce. So this is everything from, you know, copyrightable content would be anything that's written, you know, books, courses, blogs, NFTs, even buildings, tattoos, anything that's like an original work of authorship that can be protected with copyright law. And then um, same trade secrets, if they have something of value that's a secret, that would apply to them as well. And then the newer kind of category of businesses is like that content creator um, category where people are just basically monetizing themselves, their own personal brand, their own reputation, their own name, image, likeness, all of that, their social accounts. So that is more unique IP, but it mostly falls in the realm of all three, like patents, trademarks, copyrights. So again, if they've invented something, um, launched something and, you know, invented something unique with utility, it's patent law. If they have created a brand or if they are using their personal name as a brand, that's all going to fall under trademarks. Copyright's going to be their, their content that they produce. And then all of these different IP rights, I say, oh, it's copyright, it's trademark, but they all come in. Actually, it's not just one right there. It's like a bundle of sticks. So like copyright rights have are multifaceted. So you can give away some of the rights and keep them. So we can think about like Taylor Swift. She's re-recording her albums right now because she was the original songwriter. So she retained certain copyright rights that her record label didn't get. So now after a certain amount of years, she's able to do you know, she's able to copy what, you know, before her record label owned and redo it and monetize it. So, you know, copyright is not just, oh, you, you have a copy, you have this piece of content or movie or something and give it away to someone and they own it exclusively. Um, you have, there's different layers of rights and you can negotiate all that. And if you're giving away more rights than you want to, you know, you want to be compensated accordingly. Well, there's, there's you as the actor or the person and then there's the producer and there's all those other things in it like you see the movie credits these days and so some of the big actors are like they're the executive producer and they're this and they're that and they're getting so they're getting compensated for all those different levels of what they're providing in that movie and owning yeah because if someone is acting that's their name image likeness but also if they're famous their reputation also if they're producing the script like if they're scripting that's another form of IP, you know, if they're producing the idea and the script behind the video. So there's so many different levels and types of IP that may be woven into one thing. And then if you're going to be selling those rights or giving them away in some sort of contract, you want to negotiate that exclusivity is like another type of IP, right? So if you uh, model is being hired by an apparel brand and they don't want her to work with that type of apparel for two months, that's a right she should be compensated for. So all of this kind of goes into like the IP realm. 
So, and then when, when businesses sell, you know, their, their when they want to exit, their IP portfolio has to be valued. And then if you look at any business, um, large, small corporation, sole proprietor, whatever it is, the value of their IP is most of the value of their business. Gotcha. Well, I mean, like some of these social media celebrities, without them, the brand has no value, does it? I mean, if they're... Not about the social media celebrities, the brand itself, without the brand itself. Like, for example... No one's going to pay $1,000 for this if it doesn't have that little apple right here. You know, no one is going to pay for a piece of metal if they don't know what it is. Right. So Apple spends a lot of money making sure that nobody, no other electronic company puts that Apple logo on their stuff because Apple has spent a lot of money developing their brand. And so when they put their logo or name on something, people, it comes with a certain reputation. Regardless of if whoever's watching this likes Android or Apple, you know, that is what it is. You know, you don't want Apple would be mad if the next store next to them opened up an electronic store and called it Apple or anything similar to it. So the value of Apple's brand is like a huge portion of the value of that company. Because without the brand, if they're not able to exclusivize their products and services, they're not able to have a high value brand. If everybody's just ripping them off. Reminds me of that old, uh, that old Eddie Murphy movie coming to America where he works for, did you ever see that movie? No. To what, what happens in it? So there's a part in there where he gets the job at this place called McDowell's and it's right down the street from a McDonald's. Right. And he says, look, I know what you're thinking, but they have the golden arches. We have the golden arcs. They have the Big Mac. We have the Big Mick. (laughs) Yeah. So when a brand has invested into building a reputation and providing a certain type of product or service over time to consumers, they've built a lot of, it's called like goodwill, reputation, and other companies can, if they, you know, rip them off, they'll just copy them and try to capitalize right on their coattails. Mostly this, you know, we see a lot of this happening, which is, you know, what happens with China, right? The big problem. So Large corporations invest a lot into developing their brand because they need that's how you make money when you can push your products and services, run ads on it, make people want to buy it, but also protecting their brand because um, if you can't, if you're investing a million dollars into running ads on a specific product and then you, somebody else is going to, you know, go buy it from your competitor who looks like you and they can't tell the difference. That's really bad for your business. Um, so they spend a lot on protecting their brand as well and making sure no one else is allowed to use it. So that's, you know, for large corporations, but when you actually look at smaller businesses, it's more important um, their IP is usually of higher value in proportion to their business. And they do not really have the cushion to deal with mistakes made with their IP. So if you create some sort of product or service or any business, and then you have a brand, but the next store, you know, over to you, they open up the same exact kind of store, sell the same exact kind of thing. You're out of luck if you've not protected your IP, because as a small business, you don't have multiple six figures to go fight that out in court. 
Sure. It's like every time somebody does something against Disney or one of their films or whatever, they get these people get a nasty gram real quick from Disney because they have the money and the resources to kind of shut them down in that regard. Cease and desist are common. Cease and desist are just part of the game. They're just common. But I mean, you have to think of it like Disney spends a lot of money developing their brand. So when people copy it, while it might be like fan behavior and things, Disney is the one who built the brand and they should be the ones who are allowed to capitalize on it. Just the same. I mean, Disney does a lot of bad things too, but that's just for brand. They can be overly aggressive as well. I'm not going to lie, but a small business that develops a brand, you know, they, they should do the same thing. And it season desists are common, even with small businesses, they send them to each other all the time. Sure. I get your point. I mean, yeah, if somebody infringes upon some of Disney's stuff and steals a little money or makes a little money off of it in the grand scheme of things, they're not going to take Disney down. You know, it's not going to hurt Disney. But to your point, you know, if like, for example, if, if, you know, if I was a person that owns like, uh, let's say I was Kim Kardashian and I own KimKardashian.com and I sold products there. Well, if I don't, I, her last name is maybe a little complicated to spell. If I own the URLs of the common misspellings of her name and sold other products on those websites when people showed up, they were only going there and looking for that stuff because of what Kim is actually doing. So they're kind of stealing her traffic in a way per se. So I can understand that. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So um, it just costs a lot of money to build a brand these days because it requires a significant amount of development into advertising and product development and all of that. So you want to be able to protect that. So the way to do that is just make sure that you're protecting your IP, which means registering your IP in the first place and then monitoring it once it's registered. So when people start a business, they're going to come up with a business name that needs to be protected, like trademarks filed on it, their logos, slogans, all of that. If you're a content creator, you want to get your personal name trademarked, or whatever name that you're going under, potentially your social handles. Um, you want to make sure you have standard clauses you're putting in all your contracts that say you own, you know, XYZ rights. There was a case, I don't know if you've heard of Haley Page. She was the wedding dress designer for Say Yes to the Dress, the TV show. She worked for a fashion company and um, she actually lost the right to use her own personal name. Now she had an Instagram account of Miss Haley Page, like her own name, with a million followers where she did brand deals and things like that's how she was making a living, plus her reality TV um, appearances and work for the fashion company. But the fashion company actually was re- just recently successfully able to like beat her in the, in a court case. She's now appealing, but she no longer has any access. She is not allowed to have her Instagram account back that has her own name. She's not even allowed to use her name in commerce anymore. How's that possible? You don't have a, you don't have like an inherent right to use your name as a brand. And if you've signed away rights, if you have. She signed away, she signed away rights to somebody at some point for her name or whatever to be used. So yeah, to trademark a living person's name, you actually have to sign like an affidavit. So if somebody went and tried to trademark their personal name, they're going to get a rejection and say, Tell us that, you know, you give consent to trademark your name. So anyway, she gave this company consent to trademark her name. And now not only is she not allowed to use it for what they register the trademark for, like wedding dresses and fashion, like she's not allowed to use it at all in commerce. She had to come up. She literally can't say her name in public because as an influencer, you have like everything you do can technically be monetized, right? 
So, she, you know, it's, it's really sad because it's setting bad precedent. Like, I don't think that signing like a trademark inherently encompasses a social media account, but you know, the courts disagreed. Ooh, that is super. So interesting. She's appealing. We'll see how it all plays out, but this is very important also for side hustlers because they are employed by a company and sometimes they start a side hustle and their company can try to claim the revenue from it. Right. You built that while you were working for our company, the things that you learned when you were our company and all on our dime with our resources and our laptop yeah. and all the other stuff. And so we own that. Yeah. Or, you know, if somebody starts, even if it's unrelated, like let's say you work as in some corporate job doing, I don't know what, like you work in marketing for a corporate job. And then at nighttime you go home and you start an Instagram account where you post your outfits and you're linking them. So people, you know, you're making commission off them, monetizing that, you know, your company, depending on what your contract said, your employment contract and all that, they can potentially say, Hey, we own, like, show us your revenue that you're making from your, you know, Instagram account, YouTube channel, whatever it is. And we own that or portion of it because, you know, you did that while you were employed with us. So yeah, it gets very in the gray area. So A lot of people don't think about this stuff, but basically everything that you do is going to somehow relate to IP. So securing your rights, not signing them away, or if you're signing them away, getting compensated for it, you know, is very important. Sure. I feel like I need to hire you now. Like, (laughs) 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 this overwhelming feeling, like I have talked to an IP attorney on a bunch of stuff before and whatnot. Um, So I'm familiar with the concept. I haven't um, uh, actually, it's an old fraternity brother of mine who is a pretty sizable IP attorney out in California. So uh, that I talked to about some of this stuff and uh, I don't know. There comes a time for everything, right? Yeah, there comes a time for everything. With um, new businesses these days, I always say it's a lot, it's just a lot cheaper and smoother to do all this before there's a problem, which is usually when people contact me, is when I would say for e-com, the biggest problem they have for people selling products directly to consumers right now is China. So it's not like some random you know, stay at home mom making Mickey Mouse ears selling on Etsy. That's the big problem. It's that, you know, China is selling things in bulk on places like eBay and DHgate and making hundreds and thousands of dollars off selling Mickey Mouse ears to people who don't want to pay $50 to Disney. They'd rather pay $10 to some Chinese manufacturer for the same thing. Right. But it's hard to, you know, combat that. There's things that you do, right? You make sure you protect everything. You can register your IP with Customs and Border Patrol. So there's a lot of things that product-based e-com businesses need to do. Um, Service-based businesses, I would say you're more as much at risk of China, but unless it has to do with technology, but yeah, you're still at risk of other people copying you. Content creators are the most vulnerable and most at risk because they don't know their rights. And they... um, their IP assets are largely, there's no good case law in their favor. So I would have a couple of points on that. Um, 
you know, China has been knocking off stuff forever, right? But we still, for some reason, people still keep sending stuff over there and letting them manufacture it. We, why we haven't brought that back? Because it's commonly known that they just rip off. Somebody over there in the process rips off everything and creates a competitive product at a discount. I mean, you even hear that kind of stuff on Shark Tank. We were doing really good for our first couple of years. Then we found a manufacturer out of China and we started to scale. And then boom, the market got flooded with a comparable product that was less and less money. And we, we got crushed, right? And now we're trying to sue them and we're not going to win. Right. So just, or, you know, it's going to be a period victory. Even if you win, we're going to go, our business is going to go under because of it in the process. Right. Well, no, no. If you protect yourself, you're, you're usually okay. So I have a lot, almost, I only have one e-com business that manufactures in China. The rest of the hundreds that are my clients of e-com businesses, all of them manufacture in China, all of them. And there are way there are steps that you take to prevent that. So you make sure you register everything um, well before you launch. Like you cannot even file a trademark. You cannot file an LLC, like I would say, before you have your domains and social secured. China has like AI that scans our systems now and automatically like acquires domains. I swear there's no way they could do it that fast without AI. Then you also want to make sure that you're developing like more substantial brands, like you don't want to maybe do something that generic anymore because it's going to be hard for SEO. It's going to be easier for China to capitalize on that. So developing a more unique brand, making sure you get your registrations in for your copyright, trademarks, patents of necessary filings well before launch, one to two years before launch, and then making sure that you have your NDAs and making sure that things are on a need to know basis. Don't do WhatsApp chats with 10 different manufacturers, you know, sending them all of your stuff. Make yeah. sure that everything you're giving them, there's already, you know, filing copyright and patent filings on all of that. So there's a lot that you can do to protect yourself and then they don't mess with you as much. But most people aren't doing that. Well, most people are like, that's a cost. That's an expense. I don't know if this is going to go anywhere anyway. So they focus into the business. The business starts turning into something. Now they're busy with the business. They forget to go back and protect all that stuff. And then it's kind of, you know, cats out of the bag, you know. (laughs) So with patents, with trademarks, you're allowed to kind of file at any point. And if you file after a Chinese company, let's say you start a business and you come up with a name for it you know, ABC business, and then you're running this business for two months, starts picking up. You're like, okay, this is serious. I'm going with it. And then you go look and a Chinese company has filed a trademark for ABC business. You know, you still have a potential to get that trademark. You have to now kill their mark and then push yours through, which 10X is the cost versus just filing first. But there's still an opportunity when it comes to trademarks, brands. With patents, couple things is you must be the first to file. America is now a first to file country with the new um, law, the new AIA, America Invents Act. We are a first to file country. You must be the first filer. And you can actually bar yourself from obtaining patent protection if you publicize something um, too early. You only have a one-year grace period. So if today on August 31st, I disclose that, hey, I have created this product, this technology, this invention, and I, you know, post it on social media. I, I say it at a conference, do some press about it. I need to have my patent filing in August 31st, 2023. If I do not file a patent by that day, I've barred myself from obtaining a patent on that. You can bar your own self from obtaining a patent. So timing with patents is very tricky and it's a first to file. So if somebody else 
files something before I get a filing in, it's not good for me. And patents are much more expensive than other types of IP to push through and obtain. You know, a trademark may cost you a few thousand dollars. Patents will can cost like 30 to 50K. So a lot of times people need investors for that. And you want to make sure you time things correctly. You know, you're announcing things in a way that will give you enough time to secure investor funding, but will still give you enough time to have that filing get in on time. So a lot of strategy goes behind that. And people just say whatever they want to whoever they want these days. Like no concept of like, let me get this NDA. Let me do this on a need to know basis. Let me strategize my timing. So there's a lot of problems with that. Sure, sure. So let me go back to something. You mentioned content creators, right? And so when I was growing up, you heard this, thing that said, you know, if you, if you copy one person's work, it's plagiarism. If you copy multiple people's work and mash it together, it's genius. Right. So, you know, because there's a ton of information out there. And a lot of times when you see content creators, they really, it's not per se original. It's somebody else's content twisted, changed, repackaged, you know, a different color lipstick on it. Like, Maybe the other person didn't patent it or it was patented in some way, but because they put a different spin on it, man, that seems like a really gray area. How do you play through that? I mean, that's the whole field of law, but of what I do. Um, so yeah, that's a huge point is that if you're, if you've created a course and, or I don't know, any piece of content and someone goes and kind of regurgitates it, puts their own spin on it, we're going to look at, you know, percent, what's the real similarity here? And with copyrights, you know, there's a different level of how similar it has to be versus trademarks versus patents. There's different standards and also depends on what actually it is, you know, for, I will say this, I just have this sitting right here in front of me. I have this trademark for my law firm on a law and that this is already registered as a trademark. And I also filed a trademark for attorney Anna. That Mark, that trademark, attorney Anna, that application received a refusal from the government based on this mark because they said it was similar to Anna Law. So attorney Anna versus Anna Law, right? So not only do you have to look at for trademarks, you have to look at similar, you know, no one's going to be able to go out there and say like Anna Law Firm, like, you know, nobody except me could get that trademark because it'd be too similar to mine. But when you think about attorney Anna, even you couldn't get that if someone has Anna Law. So you have to look at the meaning of words. You look at the visual and phonetic variations. We look at how many syllables things have. Generally in trademarks, the first part of your name is the most important. They're going to, in all fields of IP, what they're really, the courts focus on on is, does the consumer, you know, are they going to be able to remember the distinctions? And then for patents, they look at, would a, you know, reasonable person, you know, familiar with this technology be able to say like, it's an improvement or a new novel method, things like that. So you really have to look at things holistically with IP. There's many factors to analyze all this stuff, like 21 factors that we analyze. 21 factors to analyze IP. Okay. Deep dive. So, well, like at least for certain things. So if you come up with a name for something and you go to a trademark attorney and say, Hey, I want to trademark this, do a trademark search, give me clearance, tell me if it's available, like to use this as a name, they're going to do like a clearance search and they're going to run a report and analyze like everything that's similar. And they're going to tell you that, Hey, there's five marks that are similar. 
you know, this is very visually similar, or this is not that similar, but this person is very overly litigious. Their attorney is super trigger happy. Um, let's, uh, let's amend it somehow. So there's same thing with patents. You're going to do the patent search. You're going to get a clearance. Um, if somebody's invented something and then you make an improvement thereupon, you can patent the improvement. But then you have to think about, is it worth it to do that? Because to sell it, you're going to need a license from the original. Like if you created a new doorknob or something that attaches to a doorknob or something, somebody already has a patent for doorknobs. So right. you're going to get, a, you know, potentially get a license from them while you can protect your improvement upon it. You're going to still, you know, you have to look at the market too. Well, you just need to, you just need to protect your little idea and then go to the doorknob people and have them buy it from you. Yeah, but you need to have your filing in before you do that. So, yeah. Well, so yeah. You, you hire Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank because he loves to negotiate royalty deals. <laughs> yes. Yes. We, so I, we do a lot of that. We do a lot of licensing. Um, it's a huge part of IP is licensing deals because why, you know, a lot of people are, you know, why are they building a brand? They're doing it to monetize it. And that is a huge way you can monetize it. So you can make people pay to pay your inventions, your your names, your designs, you know, all of that. Interesting. Very, oh. very interesting. So, yeah. okay. So we've gone about 50 minutes. We're going to go a little bit more. I got a couple, a few more questions we're going to talk about. So how do your customers find you specifically? Because I just wouldn't be out there Googling on a law, which I know now that it'll just come up and it's you, but how do your customers, do you have this very unique niche in the way that you do what you do? How do your customers find you? Yeah. So I would say right now about half my clients obviously are more standard corporate clients that, you know, I've just built relationships with the normal way or somehow were referred to me and things like that. And then the, the newer half, like now at least half, maybe if not a little bit more than half of my clients are uh, more in the creator economy. So this is like agencies, creators, influencers, celebrities, they um, launch a lot of brands and things. So they find me mostly on social media or through referrals I have a huge portion of clients that find me on social media because there's not very many IP attorneys on social media. There are now, like there's more, but there's not anyone like producing, you know, that much content or anything, you know, crazy, like not as much as me. So at least on the platforms that I focus on so that I get, like, I have a huge cap right now, I would say on like the 35 and under entrepreneurs. I don't think anyone's going to be able to beat me on that. For a long time because it's harder now to grow on social than it was over COVID. So um, I did that for a reason because I think AI will replace lawyers soon and I don't want to be replaced. So I wanted to have like my own brand. I think AI will replace lawyers. Mm -hmm. Come on, you got to give me more that you can't just say that and roll right past it. Well, right? I think AI is going to replace a lot of a lot of, you know, people who think they can't be replaced. I don't know how quick it'll be, but AI will def AI can replace a lot of what lawyers do in terms of preliminary drafting, preliminary work at least. So that means there'll be less need for lawyers and the prices for things, you know, will have to go down. We already see it with corporate clients. They want to use all the AI out there, even if law firms don't want to. Um, I love it because I can do more work more efficiently, but, and I'm younger. So I think I get the technology better, but 
you know, AI is going to replace most service-based businesses. Now AI is creative. Like it can come up with like create art and stuff now. So it'll soon be able to create strategies and things like that. We're going to get to a point where that happens, right? So instead of waiting for that and having to react, I really wanted to secure my own brand and make sure like I was ahead of all of this. And just, I mean, I'm pretty young. I have a lot more I have to work. So I didn't want to just, you know, go stop having to work because there wasn't a need for what I do. Sure. Sure. But is it okay? Let me make a counterpoint or an argument, right? Since you're an attorney or we're making an argument, is AI really replacing the attorney or there will always be an attorney, but the AI is a tool that the attorney now uses to make their job better, more efficient, right? Now, they may not be passing off those cost savings to the client, which ultimately becomes somewhat of an issue, I think, than what you were talking about, right? But like, for example, AI is a way, so I, so the other day I heard this ad on, you can create your own logos and design. You go to this AI thing and you type in your idea, your concept, and then the AI creates like a logo. Well, you know what? I would probably still rather communicate with a human about my logo design and have them help me because they're like, oh, well, let's brainstorm some ideas, things to actually type in that I might not be thinking of that the computer is not going to suggest to me that then we type that in there and let the AI do its magic because we got the right word string in there, right? Definitely. So there's always going to be the subset of the population that just uses the AI and they're fine with it. Then there's going to be, especially for creative processes, like creating a logo or potentially coming up with legal arguments or tax strategy or very specific kind of things that require analysis plus implementation will um, still require humans for now. I mean, we never, we don't know the limitations of anything, but even if a lawyer uses AI, which I use AI, there's a software out there. It's called um, Trademark Now, and it's amazing. It's insane. The software can do in like one second what would take even an experienced attorney 20 hours to do in terms of how they can do the AI search and analyze things phonetically, um, syllable-wise, all of that. It does it instantly versus what would take manual, you know, much longer still requires an attorney to go through and put their brain on and think about what it's saying. Cause it's still AI right? that we're still limited right now in that, in terms of the tech out there to help attorneys and other professionals. But um, the tech is going to improve more attorneys will be forced to adopt it. Most don't adopt it right now. Attorneys are very resistant to adopting AI or anything that makes them efficient because the typical law firm and attorney model runs on inefficiency because they they do billable hours. So in IP, it's more common to do flat fees um, because I know, you know, I've filed 6,000 plus trademarks in like 200 countries at this point. I know exactly what it's going to take me to get to a trademark or write the arguments and all that. So I can give a quote for a flat fee for other fields of law where you're reliant maybe on other people's behavior more and things like that other parties, um, it's not as clean cut in terms of pricing. So they rely on billable models. They rely on being extremely inefficient in that, in terms of, you know, every, most lawyers, especially corporate lawyers, they pad a lot into their billables. So they may be actually doing, sitting there doing like one hour of drafting, but they'll charge you for three 
um, that kind of stuff. So, because they have to justify their costs and all that, you know, they have high overhead, they have to justify their costs. So, um, they're, so they, so they lie and embellish to, to, <laughs> no, and I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I understand the model. I, I, think, that's the worst- a, I think that's the common knowledge that a lot of people have problems with, with how yeah. lawyers bill and yeah. all of that. So, which is why I did, you know, I chose to do things differently because I heard those complaints for so many years from people. And um, I think that there are better ways to do it that make it easier on everyone. But, you know, that's why you start your own business because you feel like you can do something in a different or better way. But regardless, like in terms of AI, the AI, AI there is AI, AI out there. Most lawyers don't use it. Um, the ones who do, like, I like it. I find it to be incredibly effective and fast and accurate. Um if there is, there will still be a need for lawyers, but less because instead of me, you know, having to have five lawyers to run my searches because they take 10 hours, 20 hours each, one lawyer, I can have one lawyer who does all the searches. It only takes the AI one second to do it. And, you know, then the attorney analyze, then one attorney can analyze it versus six. So there will be less need for lawyers. And so, you know, the people who are replaceable are the people who don't have brands or who can't be the business focused attorney who can actually be an asset to businesses and the people who are just the workhorses, which is a lot of lawyers, you know, they're behind the scenes, they can do all the work, but they can't manage the client relationship because they don't understand how to assess risk tolerance level. They don't understand how to assess business objectives and they want to regurgitate law and give their you know legal theories to their clients who don't care for a 10 page memo. They want to know what are their risks, what to mitigate them. And if some risks are worth taking on, you know, it's, it's about business. It's not about law, you know, at the end of the day. So it's about, yes, you're a lawyer first and you have that legal knowledge and your opinion that you give someone, if I tell somebody something, obviously it has to be, it holds a lot of weight because if, if I'm wrong, they can come back and sue me. Right. If I tell someone, yes, you can patent this, we're going to get this for you. And then for whatever reason, or yes, you're clear to use this. And then someone sues them for it. You know, it's on me, but it's about, okay, yes, you have this risk. What can we do to minimize the risk of suing them? You know, them suing you let's negotiate with them or let's, let's, let's change this up or let's, target, you know, more of this aspect of it. So we're not infringing on their rights. It's a, it's really just about business. And unless you're out there working with business owners and you're able to be working one-on-one with the GCs and in-house counsel, you're not getting that direct business content or contact and implementing those skills. So hopefully that kind of makes sense. So if I was most lawyers who just stay at law firm, large law firms, and they just do the background work, it's really, really harming them for the future because they'll be the first that are replaceable because they're doing what AIs can do. Understood. But look, it's like that in every industry. It's one thing to know how to do the actual trade craft. It's another thing to be to understand how to run a business or man a business around the trade craft, right? Like baking pies. Bacon pies, not necessarily that hard. I can probably bake a pie. Could I build a business out of baking pies? 
that's a whole scaling and doing all that stuff is a complete yeah. different right? So, and then if you're teaching someone how to bake pies or you're you're doing something in their business specifically for it, you really have to know the business behind it. You have to understand how their business. So especially with the newer Web3 and creator economy and all that, like people, if you're 67 years old, you've never heard, you don't know the difference between TikTok and Twitter, you should not be advising e-com clients who are making all their money from Facebook ads. You don't even know what that means, you know? So you don't know that there's imposter accounts on Instagram. You don't know how to get rid of them. You don't know how to get your clients verified when they need to on socials. You don't know how to get their accounts back when Instagram shuts them down. Like it's all of the new IP assets that we have to deal with now. And, um, you know, these people really need help in those fields and no one really wants to do it. I don't see law firms doing it. I didn't see that. That's why, you know, I do what I do because my own friends couldn't find anyone. I wasn't allowed to have those clients at my old firm. There you go. There yeah. you go. Solve a problem and you solved it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So very good. Very good. Well, Anna, this is, this is, we've gone a little bit more in an hour. This has been great. It's been a lot of fun. I learned a lot. So any closing thoughts after everything that we've talked about today, anything that our listeners should, should know? So, uh, well, for, are your listeners mostly entrepreneurs or are they... Are they um, like executive? Like, what's the realm? Then I'll give like a last piece of advice or something. Um, you know, I would say the listeners are going to be either, um, you know, high net worth clients, which many of which are business owners, right? Or decision makers with, with industry, with business, or the professional advisors that currently work with them. Maybe their CPA, their attorneys, their brokers, and other people that work with them. So it's either the people that are working with higher net worth, you know, clients or the, the clients potentially themselves. Yeah. So um, I would, okay. My last piece of advice is just, so IP related advice is just um, during any transactions, just make sure that the IP is handled appropriately because it's a lot, a lot, a lot easier and cheaper and smoother and faster to do it right versus backtracking and cleaning up. It's still sometimes possible. You're just not going to get the best results. I actually teach like a CLE, like a continuing education course to, um, uh, lawyers to family law attorneys. I teach like how to deal with IP assets and death and divorce um, and estate planning attorneys. So IP is very, very, very valuable. Most high net worth individuals probably have some sort of IP. They potentially may own a business that has it, or maybe they have it themselves. So just making sure that whenever something is transferred and there are transactions relating to their business, check the IP Make sure that everything is in order. Do not negate it because, you know, I've done cleanup projects back to like the 1940s when people have been messing up their IP since back then. So try not to do that. It's very expensive. And um, they, as a, especially a state planning attorney, fam, divorce attorney, um, accountant, um, advisor, financial advisor, it's really like it, it should be, a, there should be some sort of duty on you to at least issue spot that, hey, this may be a valuable IP asset or something that has value. Let's make sure we know how much it's worth and we actually own it. We um, actually know how to perfect our interest in it and um, make sure it's, you know, a lot of people use their IP as liens or, to, you know, people put liens on them, all that. So make sure just everything's clean with your IP, keep it clean and, there will be less problems 
And then make sure you know, you tell them to leverage it if they can. So when you're selling businesses, buying businesses, you know, leverage the IP, it adds a lot. It adds millions to businesses, um, even small businesses. You can like double the value of your business if you negotiate transferring the IP. Okay. So clean and leverage your IP is the takeaway. Yes. Keep your IP chain of titles clean. Make sure it's just clean. Don't mess it up. (laughs) Don't forget about it and do transactions. And then, yeah, just make sure your clients know to leverage it and, um, you know, just get them everything they can get, kind of. There you go. Well, great. Well, I think it's a great final point to share. Um, You know, you definitely brought some stuff to mind that I didn't necessarily think about before or not to the same magnitude. So I appreciate that. So, um, Anna, thanks for coming on today. This was great. for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. For our listeners today, I hope you learned a lot. And um, once again, um, this was Anna Junja. She is a intellectual property attorney and Anna Law. She's patented or trademarked her Anna Law. So yeah. it's everywhere. It's all over your social media. That's what I know. <laughs> yes. So once again, this was Matt Chancy, and this was the Tax Alpha Podcast. And um, we'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.